and welcome to the Generosity Freak Show. I am Riley Landenberger, and today we get to hear from Noah Barnett, Chief Marketing Officer of Virtuous, which is also the super cool sponsor of this very podcast. You'll get to hear Noah and Brady really dive into all things multi-channel and share some findings and key takeaways from the multi-channel donor communication study that Next After and Virtuous recently partnered together on. Noah also shares his thoughts about responsive fundraising, what that means at Virtuous, and the way he understands donor fatigue. So without further ado, I will hand things on over to Brady. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. I said, welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Oh, welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Noah, my friend, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. I've been, uh, you've been on the opposite side of this, Mike. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's great. Let's dig in. All right. So we're going to talk about all different types of things, but really focus in on some multi-channel research that we did with y'all. Before that, I always like to start with a personal kind of anecdote. And one of the things that I know is you and your family spent a good chunk of time living in an RV. Um, Why? And how was it? (laughs) Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting part of our story. Um, that kind of concludes with the start of the pandemic. But back in the fall of 2019, uh, my partner and I, you know, I have a family of three boys, uh, we have a dog, you know, we were living in a small town that we had lived in, you know, since college, really, we had had some spurts somewhere else and different places. But one of the challenges we always struggled with was this idea of how do you decide what you want to do next, while you're laying in kind of the sediment of where you are now. And we felt like there was an opportunity to uh, separate those decisions Mm. um, because I was working remotely for Virtuous at that time. Um, My partner had just left her job after working for 10 years. Um, And so we had, we had the opportunity to say, Hey, let's separate these ideas. So let's remove ourselves from our current moment. We know we need something different and that will give us space to then determine uh, without the direct attachment to what we're in about what we want to do next and where we want to go. And the RV kind of idea is fantasized, but it really was a vehicle for us, literally, to be able to kind of create that distance that we needed to decide where we wanted to go next. Hmm. And so we set out and we were going to do it for a year. So we, you know, sold our house, we did the whole typical thing, we bought an old RV, we fully renovated it in 10 days. Uh, When I say we, I mean, uh, my partner, Becca, renovated it in 10 days, (laughs) while also selling our house and putting all of our stuff in storage. And then we just we just headed out. And so we headed out um, in kind of October-ish. And it was it was good. We went to Florida, we went through the South, everything like that. It was, you know, it was challenging and tough. Uh, but then, you know, as we all had to shift and change, uh, March 2020 hit. And it was just kind of like a, well, back then, like we didn't even know what was going to happen, right? Like they were talking about closing state borders, like they were going to kick you out if you weren't from the state. So we were in uh, kind of central California at that point. And so we just decided that, hey, you know, we knew that Phoenix, uh, Arizona was a likely destination for us at the end of our journey, uh, because Virtuous is headquarters here. And I wanted to be closer to my the other executive team members. 
And so we just bought a house and moved in on April 1st. There you go. Well, I feel like every kind of family at some point maybe has this idea of like, well, what if we just gave it all up and hopped in an RV, but no, like no one ever does it, but you guys actually did it. So uh, good for you. <laughs> yeah, it, I, it's not advisable for everyone, but I do think it's interesting like to question assumptions. So I think it's like, oh, we could never do that. Or, oh, the timing is never right. And it's like that level of thinking can sometimes really be the demise of, you know, progress and learning. And I think like, you originally kind of posed this question potentially as like, what did you learn? And I think what we learned is like, you can do things like that. It's mm. not, it's going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, there was a bunch of other lessons like along the way. Um, but just that ability to be able to take action and move forward and maybe take a leap that's unconventional. And like, at the end of the day, like everyone's fine. My kids aren't like crazy and, you know, like everyone survived, even though we <laughs> almost died a few times, Yeah, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> um, and just being able to be adaptable. Like, I think my kids learned that really quickly. We had to, you know, we were moving places all the time and just the value of that, I think is just, I don't know, for me, it was life giving and for everyone else, at least they have a few stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sure your kids. We'll have fond memories. We'll have too. to talk about the Big Ben experience in the future. Ooh, okay. So, it's a some, some other time. <laughs> People are on pins and needles. Um, okay. So you're actually virtuous. You are the sponsor of this podcast right now. So thank you. Uh, we we're, not actually, we're not actually going to run any of your, your spots or, or ads because we're just going to talk about it for a second in terms of um, why, why did you want to sponsor this podcast and what is virtuous about? Yeah. So. The Generosity Freak Show is an interesting uh, name for a podcast, but what we appreciate about Next After and the work that you're doing through this is you're elevating conversations that talk about how we move our generosity ecosystem forward. And one thing that's uh, foundational to who Virtuous is, is that we believe deeply, and you and I both know this too, that giving is deeply personal. And yet many of the fundraising techniques and tactics that we have learned and have been taught or have taught in some instances are, you know, can be largely impersonal. And so Virtuous set out six years ago to help nonprofit teams grow generosity by providing platforms, playbooks, and people to really help them deliver more personalized donor experiences, but also advance their missions at scale and with confidence. And so today, what that looks like is, you know, we have a, the Virtuous platform. Um, we also have another uh, platform called Raise Donors, which we're really grateful joined our team. I know we're going to talk about that a bit last year, but all of those platforms are designed to really enable nonprofit teams to scale the donor experience in a personal way and help move their missions forward. And then we do a bunch of other stuff like sponsoring this podcast and hosting summits that are also elevating that because technology is only a piece of the puzzle. And we want to be a part of growing generosity because that's what our mission is. And so we invest in other things and, you know, this is one of those. And I'm grateful that we have the opportunity. Yeah, well, we're, we're grateful too for, for the work that you do too. I mean, we say this in our ads, but uh, I've referred many a nonprofit over to Virtuous. I believe in the product and it's, it's great. All right, enough of the like love fest. Uh, let's Clients move on. right now with <laughs> Next After, which is great. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is great. Um, all right, now for the love fest, let's move on to what we're here to talk about. It's actually some research that you partnered with us on looking at uh, multi-channel communications with an emphasis of kind of like the onboarding um, of new donors, right? That was really the, this part of the, the research that we're partnering on. Um, so um, 
we haven't really discussed this on the pod yet, but uh, what is multi-channel for you guys and why did you want to do this study? Yeah, so one of the big things that we talk about here at Virtuous is what we call responsive fundraising. And there's a lot of various principles of responsive fundraising, but a big focus of it is listening to your donors at scale and then connecting with them in real time in a personalized way. What that is uh, missing in that definition is, oh, does that mean like through email or does that mean in this or that? And we exclude that for a reason because we do believe that the world we live in today is kind of a multi-channel engagement with the brands, the experiences that we want to connect with and that we want to be involved in. So as part of being a responsive nonprofit, it really requires you to think not about a channel strategy, but rather a donor strategy that's leveraging multi-channels. And that was really our hypothesis. And so when we were discussing this with you and the team at the Institute, we wanted to kind of take this hypothesis and say, well, what are organizations doing right now? How are they leveraging multi-channels to engage with their supporters? What is the impact? And how can we bring, you know, in some ways, a little bit more color to our hypothesis and learn something along the way? Cool. Yeah. And that, so that's what we kind of tried to tried to do, right? We became a, a donor online and offline to the same organizations at the exact same time, the same amounts. But Totally different donors, different emails, different phone numbers, different names, different addresses, tracked them all, phone, email, text, and phone, email, text, and mail for four months to produce this study. Um, it was a heck of a, heck of a lift. <laughs> so thanks, it, for, uh, thanks for doing that. <laughs> yeah, it was a, was a bit of a beast picking up the mail every week, Paul, and then myself. It was a bit of a, bit of a chore, but uh, we got through it. Um, when you look at the, the end report and end study, like what stood out to you most? I mean, I know we have our key findings, but I'm interested in what, you know, you as, as Noah thought was, was most interesting. Yeah. I, the, the thing that was interesting, there's multiple, there's, there's tons of insights that are bundled in here, but we did see that there is a attempt to do multi-channel. So this is something that is a socialized concept that, hey, multi-channel is a good idea. We shouldn't be engaging with our donors through multiple channels. Um, and in various ways, the organizations that we surveyed were doing different levels of that. But there was a very, very small percentage of it. I think it was 3%, if I'm not mistaken, Brady, that were actually doing multi-channel regardless of the channel that the donor came in on. So that they were leveraging multi-channel on both sides of an online donor versus an offline donor. And so this, uh, this I guess, uh, playfulness with multi-channel, but lack of like professionalism or professionalization of multi-channel within those organizations we researched, even though we know that the results um, from studies that you all have done you know, with your clients at Next After, um, can have tremendous impacts on average giving, donor engagement, et cetera. So I didn't, I think the surprising thing was the gap between the like insights that this works, the desire to do it and the playfulness in various ways, how people are doing a little bit here, a little bit there, but then the distance for those that are actually executing this at scale. And that's almost gave me a challenge and our team here at Virtuous to say, okay, wow, like how do we help organizations close that gap? How do we, how do we push and not only through education, but through technology, uh, best practices, examples, you know, celebratory case studies, whatever it is, to help more organizations move from the playful side <laughs> of multi-channel to professionalizing this and helping them do this at scale. Because ultimately, we believe that that's how donors want to engage, and it's going to help them better connect and build confidence with you as an organization 
and connect with a cause that they care deeply about. But we also know that it's also going to help the organizations move their mission forward based on the early results that we have. Yeah, and I think that was one of the the things. Obviously, we we just experienced, you know, from the donor perspective, kind of like what happens. We don't necessarily know like why those things happened or did not happen, but for sure, one of the assumptions is it's uh, sometimes a lack of knowledge of maybe not understanding how valuable multi-channel donors are and communications are. Although that's a fairly generally accepted concept in our space, we've talked about it enough. So then it really comes down to like, well, if we know it's important, then why don't we do it? So then it's either like, we don't know that it's that important or it's a prioritization factor of like, yeah, it's important, but there's other things that are more important and or just no ability to do it, execute time and resources. And I think that's where products like Virtuous or Sly Broadcast or these other types of tools, MailChimps and Zapiers and Automate have an unbelievable amount of potential to ensure that we can create good experiences in different channels without just draining thousands of dollars and you know hundreds of people's time like it really doesn't take that much but i think a lot of people feel like it does is that something that you see or or hear from clients that that they feel like it's so overwhelming but maybe when you talk to them and kind of walk them through your product or some of these other tools they're like oh that's actually not that bad or or what what do you think yeah i think there's a, a few comments i would say one is that if we look across external industries outside of philanthropy, everything from finance to fashion, you know, from entertainment to education, we're seeing personalization at scale at all levels in everything. So we always talk about that personalization is everywhere. And it's not just the Netflix and Amazons or the Apples and the billion dollar companies, but there's people like my local credit union is leveraging personalization to engage with me through multiple channels at the right time with the right offer. So I think we need to be encouraged that this isn't an impossible feat. <laughs> we have really good examples externally from our industry. Second is I think there's a multitude of problems as we've talked to nonprofits that could be, and again, this is still a hypothesis, preventing organizations from adopting multi-channel fully. One which you just highlighted is like an acumen gap. Like, hey, how we do fundraising and how we've been taught to do fundraising is we need more education on how then we do that in a multi-channel micro moment, single conversation away or single conversation way with our donors. Like how do we actually do that? So there's obviously education opportunities uh, to close that gap. I think the second was we need more organizations that are doing it well to like showcase, you know, the under the hood, how are they doing it? Like, what does this actually look like? Um, and we're excited about helping on both of those. The third thing I would bring up that's interesting is, is something I want to explore more. So this is just going to be a primer, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts, Brady, is that we actually have organizational structure problems in a lot of nonprofits that prevent them from even being able to do multi-channel. And I'll give you a few examples is, is there's two things we see. One is that the communications and marketing team is on one side of the fence. The fundraising team is on another side of the fence, and they kind of have their marching orders but to do multi-channel well, you really have to kind of pull these things together to be able to uh, like execute multi-channel at scale in the right way. And how do we pull these disciplines more together instead of them being separate? So it's the, you know, the convergence of, you know, kind of a, a marketing comms development advancement disciplines. Like how do we pull these things together and get them working? I'm encouraged because I think a lot of organizations actually have these under one executive now we're seeing more like chief development officer and communications or 
Uh, I met someone the other day that's a chief development officer and marketing officer. And so they're unifying these in more way or a chief growth officer, which kind of unifies the two as well. The second note I would bring up is that a lot of times organizations um, that we engage with are structured around the relationship a donor has with you as an organization. Not necessarily where they're at in their journey, regardless of that level of relationship. So what I mean by that is we'll have like the annual fund department, then we'll have the major donor development department, we'll have the plan giving people. And so they're orienting these separate teams that have separate separate goals and objectives. And then you even have like the digital team, like over in the other corner or the acquisition team. And so these teams are focused on the relationship a donor has with them. So the orientation of the donor to the organization not how the individual wants to engage with the cause. And so I think there's some organizational things that need to be addressed um, to be able to align roles and responsibilities and accountability to be able to execute multi-channel well. Again, complete hypothesis from my conversations, but I really do think there's a uh, operating model change that needs to happen for organizations to be able to adopt this at scale. Yeah, I, I think all those points are, are pretty bang on. I think, you know, on the on the last one, in a in a way, there's these like models that we've had and taught in fundraising that I think aren't really doing us any favors right now. One of them is kind of like the donor pyramid that basically says someone's engagement is based on how much they give to you, and that has nothing mm-hmm. to do with how committed they are to you is how much they give. So like that's the life cycle typically that like we move people through like up donor levels, and it's just it's backwards. Like I could never give you a million dollars, but I can still give you a decent amount of money and I'm really passionate about and interested in your cause, but you know, I don't trigger this flag on dollar value. So I don't get treated a certain way. Yeah. And it's just like that, that part's really weird. And then you're right. The, the split between marketing and fundraising, I think is the, the second most damaging thing for our ability to grow fundraising. Number one is the overhead myth, which we won't go into, <laughs> but I do think the separation of kind of like marketing communications over here and fundraising over here and now I think it came from really, really large organizations where like, if you're a hospital, yeah, you do have a communications department that is totally separate from fundraising. I understand like they have this, the majority of their work and employees don't exist to do fundraising. So like that kind of makes sense. But for many, many organizations, you know, that's not the case. And even in that case, your comms to, to you know, uh, clients and customers and patients does impact, you know, your fundraising and donors. So it's yeah. just, it's a weird way to think about like, you know, we do sales over here and, you know, marketing and communications is unattached. I'm, I'm sure some companies view that, but it seems to be a bigger thing in nonprofits. And I'm glad yeah. to hear that it's maybe becoming, you know, less and less and less of a thing and becoming more unified. Yeah. And I think even if you just double tap into the development or the fundraising team, so disregard the like larger, you know, organizational, like functional areas divide, and the silos there, but just the, you know, like I meet people every, every day that they're like, oh, I'm in charge of digital fundraising. Like, wait, what? (laughs) Why? Like, I get it. Like we need specialists, but why? That's like, that, that's interesting. Like, how do you talk with the person that's in charge of direct mail? It's like, oh no, we have a different person that's in charge of direct mail. Right. And so orienting someone's role around the channel makes sense at some level, but I do think we need to either have a better collaboration system at the strategy level so that those specialists can be executing it there. But we're meeting people that are at like the director, like strategy level decisions that are all channel. I am the director of digital. I am the director of 
events and like large galas and golf tournaments. Like I'm the director of Mm -hmm. major gift fundraising. I'm the director of direct mail and direct response, TV media, whatever. And it's Mm -hmm. like, Oh, maybe that's like, I don't know. I, I see it in our own organization. Like what's being measured and what people are directly held accountable for is what gets done. Yeah. Like, if I don't orient, if I want something to change, it's not typically even an edu- like me reminding them. It's like, we're going to move your target to better align with the objective and the behavior we want to hold you accountable to. And by the way, that target is now shared across three people. So you, you all better collaborate to make this happen. And so I think there's some operational things that are really interesting that we need to solve. Yeah. And at one level, I think it's really complex, you know, like teams and humans, humans are complex and there's history and organizations and structures. Like I understand that at one level, I do think it's pretty dead simple where you have shared goal across departments or people, right. And not have, you know, your direct mail goals here and your digital goals here necessarily is like our goal is to increase donor retention from crappy 40, 20, 30 to better 50, 60, whatever it is. Or like we're trying to increase the number of donors and like, do we, do you really care if a donor writes you a check or gives online at one level? Absolutely not. You know, (laughs) for sure there's some value and there's costs of processing and lifetime value. It gets more complicated from there, but we don't need to overcomplicate it before they even get there by saying, you know, I'm in charge of direct mail response revenue. And then not that I think people are overly territorial, you know, like let's not send an email so that we get more direct mail revenue. I don't think people are like that, you know, nefarious necessarily. But it just gets unnecessarily complicated instead of saying, what are we trying to do? Get more revenue, reach more donors. How do we do that? Could be this, could be that, could be that. You know, I think that shared goals. And then we can get into incentivizing those goals, which again is probably another topic. But, yeah, you know, if you could say, today. <laughs> you know, get a little bonus if we achieve this, that would be great. So we don't, yeah. need, to, we don't need to go there. Uh, anything else? Think, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, no, I, I do want to just touch on what you just said, though, because I do think like it's not that it's nefarious, but it's like if I'm being held responsible for the response rate on the direct mail program, like, yeah, I'm going to fight like I should because I'm being held accountable to it to make sure every dollar is counted towards that goal, because that's my objective. Now, the question is, is like that against or contrary to the organization's relationship with donors at large, and then how do you reconcile the conflicts amongst individuals where someone doing digital might say like, well, all that white mail you got, like, I should have, like, that was, that was, I was a part of that. And they're like, oh, show me the the source code attribution. <laughs> it's like, right. uh, like, okay, what if I just stop sending emails? Do you want me to do that? Like, cause then we'll see the white mail go down, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. how are we going to test this? But again, like you guys always advocate many organizations are different. You have to test it. You have to think about this from, you know, a, uh, like scientific approach. Like how do we test this? How do we optimize this and move forward? Yeah. And even in the study, we talk about one of our stats where just direct mail donors, people who only write you checks who just receive emails, you know, give three times more, uh, or sorry, give 80% more than those who don't uh, receive those emails. And so again, that that doesn't show up as email revenue, but it's driving direct mail revenue. So the things are complementary and everything we know about donor behavior, everyone's worried about like cannibalization. That's that's not really a thing that we've seen in organizations. If people give, they're more likely to give again, and they're more likely to give to other organizations. And even this past year, it's like, well, digital was way up, but are they just cannibalizing other revenue sources? No, direct mail was also up and overall giving was also up. You know, there's this kind of view that I think is 
generally false that like, if you get a donation today, then you can't get a donation in the future or, you know, like giving is um, fixed. There's actually some research on the altruism budget and they found that like all indications are that no, it's flexible. People don't have like Mm -hmm. a limit, you know? Uh, And I think that's kind of made its way into our thinking and things like that. So another conversation I wanted to get into that's related is uh, donor fatigue. So you post something recently on LinkedIn. It's kind of related to this concept of, you know, things that we kind of believe in the industry that may or may not be entirely uh, true. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts. Like, first off, like, how do you think or define donor fatigue? Uh, How do you think about or define donor fatigue? And then kind of like, is it real? Is it a myth? Something in between? What do you think? Yeah. No, to your first point, though, I I do think there are these like, oh, donor fatigue. Like, that's just like, oh, gosh, man, donors are so fatigued. Or how do we how do we prevent donor fatigue? It's like this weird thing that somehow showed up on the dashboard. We have no way to measure it. We have no way to confirm it. Or at least I haven't seen anyone measuring donor fatigue. Um, It also feels universal and off-putting, meaning like, Oh, there's this element out there that's preventing us from being successful called donor fatigue. Um, so I think like what I always try to do, and this came up in our responsive weekly show that we host every Thursday, was someone's like, oh, but what about donor fatigue? And I was like, I feel like the hard thing though is anytime I catch myself pointing outside and saying there's this invisible force that I have no control over. And now I'm taking that into consideration into what I should or shouldn't do in my organization doesn't feel right. Because Mm -hmm. ultimately, if donor fatigue does exist, let's put that over there, that shouldn't, like, how will then, like, there's no direct, like, okay, if it's true, then what? Correct. Right? And if it's not true, then what? And if it's somewhere in between, like, then what? Like, I think there's a challenge with the concept in general. And it's almost like that, just like, you know, five o'clock somewhere, like note that, you know, we talk about board members and donor fatigue is like the other one, right? So if you're like hanging out with fundraisers, just bring up like board members or donor fatigue. And like, you at least can have like a a successful drink with someone and have a few good laughs and have, you know, kind of a commiserating (laughs) session. I just don't think it's, I don't think it's helpful uh, regardless of whether it's true or not. Now, I think the other thing I brought up in the post that I recently shared is really something I've learned a lot from, you know, talking to you, Brady, is that donors may be fatigued, but if we set that aside, also people are, as humans, are deeply engaged with things that are relevant to them and that they care about and that they love and that they feel connected with. So... Let's focus on that side of the things. Like, how do we actually get like obsessive engagement, like deep connection and confidence in what we're doing? Because we know that humans will spend time where they feel is relevant and connected and engaged with. Like, you're a you're uh, um, a Premier League fan, as I know. Like, we spend hours every weekend watching this show, even though everyone's like, "Man, we're just so busy. There's no way we can get someone on." you know, a zoom call for 25 minutes, or man, like people's attention span are just 90 seconds. Now, you know, we can't, it's like people sit and watch football for three hours, like, (laughs) and then do it again, an hour and a half later when the next team's playing. So like, people spend time on where they care. And so I think we just need to, you know, as you bring up a lot is like, think less about quantity, and think a lot more about quality, and then even take it further and think about relevancy. 
And so even when we talk about or we teach responsive fundraising is it's really in the pursuit of connection and confidence through relevancy with our supporters. Like what do people care about? How do they want to be involved? How do I get to know them quicker to understand what their connection with this cause is? I, I don't know. I think it's, it, I'm stumbling at this point because I just, it's not, I don't think it's helpful to talk about. Yeah. Well, let's, let's stop talking about it and maybe talk about something else, which is really commitment. Uh, I think, which is, you know, there's a lot of different research from all different types of people pointing at commitment is really a thing that we're kind of trying to figure out to drive, you know, donor loyalty. And that, that relates to this conversation. Like if I donated to an organization because you were doing a charity run, I may not have any connection to the cause. And so when I get three emails from that organization in the next 45 days, uh, I don't care. And it's not that they're emailing me too much or asking me too much. I just fundamentally don't really care about that organization. Whereas the organization that I volunteer with here locally and donate to locally, they could email me every freaking day as long as it's good, as long as it's somewhat relevant about the issues that I care about. So I think that is the, the biggest factor. And that's what's tough with like aggregate data, right? Is we always get, well, how many times should I ask? And how many times should I email? And there is something to be said for volume. You know, there's research out there that people need to, people get, can get asked 21 times via mail before response rates start to go down. Now, we should not be optimizing for said metric. That is not a great lifetime you know, value strategy necessarily. But the idea is people can generally be asked more than you think. Same thing on email. You can, pro you can generally email people and probably should more than you think as a general rule, but that has to be hugely caveated by the things that you're talking about is you know, the yeah. quality and is there a commitment. And what we need to do a lot better job is like, do you care about this organization? How, how so? And if not, no sweat, please unsubscribe and go find whatever other organization, you know, this idea of like, yep. there are donors, our emails, and let's keep them. Because the irony is it actually hurts us. We end up mailing packages to people who don't care. That's a cost. We email to people who don't care, hurts our deliverability. There's a cost to that. You know, like that's where I think we have hope in the shift of saying like, here's the hard line costs to your organization by not taking this approach. Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the more philosophical one, which ideally would be, you know, helpful. But if we can draw those lines of like, this saves you time and money and makes your organization more effective. Uh, if yeah. we can make and that argument clear, I think it, it stands a much better chance. Yeah. And I think, you know, our, you know, shared friend, like Nick Ellinger wrote in the new nonprofit in his book that came out in 2019 about it, where he's like, how do we change the mindset? Like, maybe it is better to send the less people. And even if we raise, again, goes back to what you're being held accountable less overall money if the amount of money we make as a as a profit or not a profit but like as a uh like gross and net are different right and so we can actually generate more net after cost by raising less money yes and i think if you talk to many fundraisers like even listening to this if i was like hey what if you just raised less money next year they'd be like that's ridiculous. Like that's not even allowable. <laughs> like, right. Like that's, that's a sin in fundraising. Like, yeah. but I do think that the idea is there with the, with the goal that then you're having more resources to raise more money more efficiently. And so what we talk about a lot here at Virtuous is that, you know, your goal is to figure out what strategies and systems you can leverage to connect your supporters or your, uh, your constituents, your supporters, your stakeholders more deeply with your story 
in a way that's sustainable and scalable. And those last two S's, sometimes I feel like people like we disregard. Mm. And I would love to see more organizations optimizing for sustainability and scalability if their mission requires it. Some people are like, hey, we have a five-year goal to do this and then we're done. But that's you know half a percent of organizations that are on a tear towards a single objective. A lot of organizations have a continued mission because their mission requires it. Yeah. And so how do we think more, uh, more focused in that way of scalability, sustainability? Um, yeah. That, so yeah. generally agree with all those points. I think two things that I would just want to nuance a bit is one, you can only scale something that you know to be effective in the first place. You know, read any book on starting a, up a business, lean startup or nail it, then scale it or whatever. You have to first have a quality solution before you can scale. Mm. Otherwise, you're scaling crap. And that's what we find a lot, too, is like, oh, we're just going to ramp up. And it's like, well, you don't even actually know what works yet. So you're just <laughs> throwing more money at an unproven product, essentially, right? So before you scale, there is an element of learning. That's why, again, testing is so important. And the other thing is efficiency versus effectiveness. And I think that is really, really important. You are mainly talking about effectiveness, and that is the most important thing. That's what we're talking about, net revenue. You can raise less money, but if you spend less money, as long as the net is greater, you have more money going to your programs and services. The difference is efficiency doesn't necessarily mean you get more money. It means you might be spending less, but you might also be raising less, but you're more efficient. So that's another huge thing. And it's maybe number three. It's tied to the overhead myth, but it's hugely damaging is we've spent so much time focusing on cost per dollar raised, you know, mm -hmm. and efficiency metric as opposed to net. And it's been hugely damaging to the mindset that we have as fundraisers. And we don't think really about like, oh yeah, you know, how do I grow net revenue? Maybe I spend a million and raise 2 million. Or maybe I cut expenses, but it's net, not efficient. That's what's so, so damaging, right? Yeah. And we could even take it further where then like you should probably be measuring impact actually. Because if you're net and then you're investing those dollars more poorly, like it, it kind of goes all the way down to the, to the actual, like, what are you trying to accomplish as an organization? Yeah. Well, let's how? not go there. We're talking about fundraising, you know, Fundra <laughs> fundraising and program and impact unrelated. Yeah. Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> They're very related, but I, I, I will, uh, I will, we'll set it aside and move no, on. No, I was just, I was just joking. Uh, <laughs> of course they're hugely related, but we don't have time for that. Um, maybe last question real quick. You mentioned, uh, raised donors joining your team. We've been big fans of raised donors for a long time. I'm just interested, you know, anytime there's a merger or acquisition or partnership, uh, in the space, I'm always interested. Can you just share a little bit about, um, what, what that, how that came to be maybe at like the inside scoop and then kind of what, what you think that looks like for, for virtuous and raised donors. Cause I think it's interesting. Yeah. You know, like I said, at the start of the call, virtuous was founded or missioned to help nonprofit teams grow generosity and scale their impact with confidence. And what we found within Steven and Chris, who were the co-founders of raised donors is that they were similar missioned. And so first and foremost, there was missional alignment and how we or what we were trying to accomplish as organizations. And so virtuous and raised donors were like like-mindedly missioned. And that was first and foremost. I think over time we've worked really closely with the team at raised donors. Um, Steven and Chris are just, you know, brilliant humans. They're good people. And we felt like there was synergy of being able to partner together to both further engage. Um, and actually optimize how we serve our customers on the virtuous platform, while also seeing an opportunity for raised donors to be uh, a brilliant like tool for 
nonprofits, especially mid and large enterprise size nonprofits to be able to build these personalized, customized digital giving experiences. One of the great things about Raise Donors is that the infrastructure is easy to use for your everyday nonprofit that's just trying to raise money online and be able to make that efficient and effective, but also robust in the way that you can create and design these really intricate digital giving experiences that are donor centric and are integrated deeply into your systems, which Raise Donor was already deeply integrated to the virtuous platform. And so that alignment between mission, team, and people. And then also what we were trying to accomplish as we empower nonprofit teams to deliver personalized donor experiences and scale their or grow their impact at scale really made sense. And so we're, we're thankful to be able to have them on board um, and be able to do that together. Cool. Yeah, no, I'm excited for what's ahead. I know we use and recommend raised donors a lot for just that reason. You know, you're small, you're more simple. Great. It's a really good out of the box tool. They're larger, more complex. We use it with some of our largest clients because we can customize it, do tab donation forms, mm-hmm. default this, change that, pass through variables. It's really, really flexible. So cool. All right. Well, um, yeah. thanks again. If I can say one, one other thing yeah. too is that like one other opportunity is that the Virtuous platform is obviously, you know, requires people to have the Virtuous platform and be able to leverage that. With raised donors, we're actually able to serve organizations that aren't on the Virtuous platform. You know, so they have deep integrations with Salesforce. They have deep integrations with uh, Aegis and other platforms. And then their API is tremendous. And so just the opportunity for us to even as a company, again, because we're mission to grow generosity, we wanted to be able to expand the footprint of nonprofits we were able to serve as virtuous as a company and raise donors a big part of that. Cool. Yeah, I think they're one of the best kept secrets in this space. So hopefully that hopefully that changes. Um, yeah, this podcast, this is their uh, coming out moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks uh, so much for your time and, and sharing and, uh, you know, partnering with us on the research, partnering with us on the podcast, things like that. Um, so, so appreciative of the work you do. Um, speaking of said work, where can people find out more about it? Yeah, everything about us is at virtuous.org. Uh, you'll be able to find a lot of interesting things about our platform, um, but also our playbooks around responsive fundraising. Again, we host a show uh, called the Responsive Weekly every Thursday at noon Eastern time. You can get that information and come hang out with us. It's been described as the best 30 minutes of a fundraiser's week. So we'd love to see you there. Mm, Good value prop. Well, thanks again, Noah. All the best. Thanks, Brady. Thank you so much for listening to the Generosity Freak Show brought to you by our friends at Virtuous, the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. Be sure to subscribe to all future episodes at generosityfreakshow.com or search the Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, other platforms that start with S, or wherever you get your pods. Now, the Generosity Freak Show is a production of Next After, where we combine the perpetual learning of a fundraising research lab, the practical application of a digital-first agency, and the rigorous instruction of a training institute to decode what works in fundraising and make it accessible to as many organizations as possible. You can learn more about the work that we do and get free evidence-based fundraising resources at nextafter.com. Now, this show would not be possible without a few folks, including our mixologist, Jacob Hill, producers Riley Landenberger and Nathan Hill, and the chief visionary behind it all, Tim Kuchuriak. So thank you so much again for listening. And no matter where you are or what you're doing right now, I hope you're having a great day.